You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading the 145th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. We used last week's show to look at what all happened following the Battle of Kernstown, which took place on March 23, 1862. And basically what happened is that Stonewall Jackson retreated to Roots Hill while the Yankees, led by Nathaniel Banks, followed him very cautiously and slowly. But then, in mid-April, when Banks finally did press forward with determination, Jackson withdrew from his position at Roots Hill without a fight, and, in fact, further conceded not only Newmarket and Harrisonburg to the enemy, but also the entire valley as far south as the North River. On April 19th, the Valley Army passed beneath, beneath the southern tip of Massanutten Mountain and then swung to the northeast, crossing the south fork of the Shenandoah River at the hamlet of Conrad's store, before making camp in the narrow Elk Run Valley between the river and Swift Run Gap. Jackson's men had covered 50 miles in three days. And again, we'll stress the importance of having some sort of map in front of you as you follow along with this story arc, since, as we warned you, there's a lot of marching and counter-marching and more marching that goes on during Jackson's Valley Campaign. And to truly understand what's going on, you really need a map so that you can see where these places are located, especially in relation to one another. We've fairly recently recommended three Civil War atlases to you guys, uh, any of which will help you follow along with the events of the Valley Campaign. Although we will just say that, actually, probably the best map as far as the big picture of what's happening is found at the very front of that Time Life book, Decoying the Yanks, that we recommended at the end of episode number 143. Oh, and one more thing for those of you who, uh, like us, are map geeks, and it's that if you get the National Geographic Civil War Atlas that we recommended and turn to page 71 in it, you can find the fantastic campaign map of the northern Shenandoah Valley that Jedediah Hotchkiss produced for Stonewall in 1862. And seeing it laid out there, um, and then a bit of it shown in detail, you'll really be able to appreciate what an impressive piece of cartography it is and understand how beneficial it would have been for Stonewall to have it. Okay, so that's probably enough about maps. So let's get back to April 1862 and... 
And, as we said at the end of the last show, Stonewall's withdrawal up the valley and then shift over to Conrad's store resulted in Nathaniel Banks completely losing track of him. But on April 22nd, Banks nevertheless confidently told Secretary of War Edwin Stanton that Jackson had, quote, abandoned the Valley of Virginia permanently, end quote. On April 25th, the advancing Federals occupied Harrisonburg, and Banks was certain that Jackson had left the Shenandoah in order to join Joe Johnston's Confederate Army in its defense of Richmond against McClellan's advance up the peninsula. On April 30th, Banks assured Stanton that, quote, there is nothing more to be done by us in the valley. But surprise, Stonewall Jackson had not abandoned the Shenandoah Valley, as Nathaniel Banks confidently but mistakenly told Edwin Stanton. Jackson's withdrawal had, in fact, been carefully thought out. By moving his army to a concealed spot above Conrad's store, Stonewall could establish a strong defensive position in Elk Run Valley, control Swift Run Gap in the Blue Ridge Mountains, which would allow him to maintain contact with Confederate forces on the other side of the mountains. And then finally, the spot above Conrad's store would also allow Jackson to launch an attack against Banks' flank if the Yankee commander advanced so far up the valley that he threatened Stanton. Stanton, and if you're looking on your map, it's spelled S-T-A-U-N-T-O-N, but pronounced Stanton, uh, but the town was some 30 miles up the valley from Harrisonburg, and for the Confederates, Stanton was the key to the southern Shenandoah Valley, because there, the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad, a vital link between Richmond and Chattanooga, was a major rebel supply artery. Federal control of Stanton would be a severe blow to the south. The previous December, some 50 miles west of Stanton, Confederate Brigadier General Edward Johnson, with a small division of 2,800 men, had fought off an attack by a federal force commanded by Brigadier General Robert H. Milroy. The clash, known as the Battle of Allegheny Mountain, earned Edward Johnson the nickname Allegheny. Johnson remained in the mountains at Camp Allegheny throughout the winter, but by April 20th, feeling threatened by Banks' advance up the valley, and also under mounting pressure from John C. Fremont's Federals on the far side of the Shenandoah Mountains, Johnson withdrew his command to Westview, just seven miles west of Stanton. From his concealed camp in Elk Run Valley, there seemed to be little that Stonewall Jackson could do to influence events over on the far side of Stanton. But as I mentioned just a minute ago, his position above Conrad's store would allow Jackson to fall on the flank of Banks' force if Banks advanced so far up the valley that he threatened Stanton. And then Stonewall's position at the foot of Swift Run Gap also allowed him to keep in close communication with Richard S. Yule, whose 8,500-man division was located to the east, on the far side of the Blue Ridge Mountains near Brandy Station. Yule's division represented the only link, the only organized Confederate force between Stonewall and Joe Johnston, after Johnston had redeployed his army to Richmond to counter McClellan's thrust up the peninsula. 
General Robert E. Lee recognized the wisdom in Stonewall Jackson's withdrawal to Conrad's store, since the move allowed Jackson to retain his freedom of maneuver so that he could unite with Ewell as necessary. Lee knew that with McClellan's enormous Federal Army knocking at the gates of Richmond, the Confederacy couldn't afford to lose the commands of Jackson or Ewell, and there was a vital need to preserve their forces and keep them mobile to maybe, perhaps, somehow, help relieve the pressure on Richmond. This thought was foremost in the mind of General Lee in the latter part of April. As you all recall, Robert E. Lee at this time is in Richmond and is a general without a field command. And in fact, although he had a high-sounding title, Commanding General of Confederate Armies, Lee had little, if any, real authority. He was actually acting in the role of chief military advisor to Jefferson Davis, but in that capacity, Lee couldn't really issue outright orders to commanders in the field, but could only recommend and suggest courses of action. And that, in a letter to Jackson dated April 21st, is what Lee did. Though loaded with significance for the future, the letter from Lee to Stonewall began almost routinely with the news that McDowell's Federals had moved to occupy Fredericksburg, midway between Washington and Richmond. McDowell obviously intended to use Fredericksburg as a base of operations against the Confederate capital in combination with McClellan's advance up the peninsula. If Banks' force was withdrawn from the Shenandoah to join McDowell, it would only strengthen McDowell's hand and aid in his part of the drive to capture Richmond. And so, with that in mind, Lee finally got around to the real purpose of his communication with Stonewall, telling Jackson, quote, If you can use General Ewell's division in an attack on General Banks and drive him back, it will prove a great relief to the pressure on Fredericksburg, end quote. Jackson was eager to comply with Robert E. Lee's suggestion, and on April 29th, he offered Lee a proposal for taking the offensive. Actually, Stonewall offered up three possible courses of action, but the one Jackson himself preferred would involve the Valley Army, Ewell's division, and Allegheny Johnson's force. Under Jackson's plan, Ewell would cross the Blue Ridge Mountains and take over the Valley Army's camps at Elk Run Valley. From there, Ewell would take up the responsibility of falling on Banks' flank if the federal commander moved on Stanton. Meanwhile, Jackson would march to join up with Allegheny Johnson just west of Stanton. The two could then combine to defeat Milroy, who commanded the vanguard of John C. Fremont's federal army. Jackson planned on he and Johnson crushing the outnumbered Milroy before the rest of Fremont's force could come up. By decisively defeating Milroy, Stonewall would prevent a link-up between Fremont and Banks at Stanton. In fact, after smashing Milroy and thus checking Fremont, Jackson planned to combine his own command with those of Johnson and Ewell, and then, with an army of 17,000 men, by far the most he had ever led, Stonewall could deal with Nathaniel Banks. Lee replied to Jackson on May 1st, saying, quote, I have carefully considered the three plans of operations proposed by you. I must leave the selection of the one to be adopted to your judgment. End quote. It was good for Stonewall that Lee didn't impose a preference, because by then Jackson, without waiting for Lee's reply, had already put in motion his scheme to combine with Johnson for an attack on Milroy. 
Without waiting for Lee's reply, Jackson had spoken with Yule. By this time, based on previous communications with Stonewall, Yule had already moved his division to within a day's march of Swift Run Gap. In his book, Shenandoah, 1862, Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign, Peter Cousins explains that Jackson summoned the nearby Yule to his headquarters twice, once on April 29th and again on the morning of the 30th. Cousins says, quote, How much of his plans Jackson confided to Yule is uncertain. Yule learned that Jackson was about to move towards Stanton and that he was to take his place at Swift Run Gap. Yule told Lee as much. Otherwise, Jackson appeared to have been his usual close-mouthed self. Yule was not even sure whom Jackson intended to attack. They spoke in general terms about the threat Banks posed, but Jackson was short on specifics. Certainly his two brief meetings with Jackson did nothing to give him any great confidence in the man. Colonel Benjamin S. Yule said that his brother led the division to Swift Run Gap in obedience to orders, but not from choice, as at that time he believed Jackson to be a brave but very eccentric man. End quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. For the 45-year-old Richard Stoddart Yule to think Stonewall Jackson eccentric may have been a case of the pot calling the kettle black. In his book on Stonewall Jackson, titled Rebel Yell, S.C. Gwynn writes, quote, Dick Yule was one of that impressive array of volatile, difficult, and highly idiosyncratic personalities who populated the Confederate Army's upper ranks. 
He was a slight five foot seven with a broad, prominent dome of balding scalp above a fringe of brown hair, an angular nose, and a less than luxuriant beard and mustache. In the famous description of his fellow Confederate general Richard Taylor, Yule, with his bright, prominent eyes and a nose like Francois of Valois, bore a striking resemblance to a woodcock, and this was increased by his bird-like habit of putting his head on one side to utter quaint speeches. He was also, wrote Taylor, a person of singular modesty. Gwyn continues his description of Yule, saying, quote, like Jackson, he suffered from dyspepsia. He would often dine only on a special preparation of wheat. He was an odd mixture of gentleness and brutal profanity. He was a compound of anomalies, wrote John B. Gordon, later a general who served in Ewell's brigade. The oddest, most eccentric genius in the Confederate army. He was, in truth, as tender and sympathetic as a woman, but even under slight provocation, he became externally as rough as a polar bear. He was, at bottom, a smart, tough officer who liked to fight, could follow orders, and harbored no grand ambitions. He had graduated 13th of 42 cadets in the West Point class of 1840 and served with distinction in Mexico and later in the American West. He was liked and respected by his men, who affectionately called him Old Baldhead. End quote. And just as an aside, but from a quick search on Google, we think Richard Taylor's reference to Yule having a nose like Francois of Valois can only be an allusion to King Francis I of France, who, at least judging from his portrait, did indeed have quite the nose. At any rate, we'll put the king's portrait up on the website, along with the photograph of Yule. And there you go, folks. You won't get that kind of in-depth historical research into Dick Yule's nose from any old Civil War podcast, but only right here, from the same folks who brought you the tantalizing question of who had the pre-war era's wildest hair, Andrew Jackson or John C. Calhoun. Remember that? Yeah, that uh, was classic. Okay, so anyway, one thing we, or at least I, wanted to mention about Yule is that while his rough exterior hid what was essentially a good heart, in the spring of 1862, Yule was also very much in love. The object of his affection was his beautiful cousin, Lazinka Brown. He loved her as a teenager, and he loved her still. Now the widowed mother of a 17-year-old daughter and an adult son, Campbell Brown, who served on the general staff, Lazinka had consented the previous December to marry Yule. They kept the engagement a secret but couldn't hide their love. Their story is told in one of the essays in our book recommendation from episode number 140 about Civil War military commanders and their wives. All right, uh, so there you go. But now back to the Valley Campaign. And when Yule marched his division over the Blue Ridge and then down toward the western end of Swift Run Gap on the evening of April 30th, the men expected to find Stonewall Jackson's veterans there. A soldier in the 1st Maryland later remembered that, quote, Nothing could have exceeded the joy of the troops at this unexpected order, for we had supposed ourselves destined to reinforce the army of Johnston in the swamps of the Chickahominy. To be in the beautiful valley of Virginia was a pleasure unexpected, and it was with light hearts and elastic step that we left our camp. 
We marched to see Jackson, talk with his troops over the great battle they had so recently fought, and more than all, to discuss the prospects before us, and if possible, to ascertain our destination. But instead, the men of Ewell's division encountered only vacant campsites. Another Marylander recalled, quote, Jackson had disappeared, whether no one seemed to know, end quote. A third member of the First Maryland said, quote, We could get no tidings of Jackson. No one knew where to find him. All that was known was that he had moved rapidly in the direction of Stanton. But, in fact, although Jackson's army had decamped suddenly, it had moved nowhere rapidly. Stonewall's initial destination on leaving Elk Run Valley on the afternoon of April 30th had been the hamlet of Port Republic, just 14 miles to the south. From Port Republic, he intended to pass through Brown's Gap and march southeast to Meacham Station on the Virginia Central Railroad. There, the Valley Army would entrain for the short ride west to Stanton. Jackson wanted to make the 35-mile march to the railroad as quickly as possible, but without any effort at concealment, since he hoped to trick Banks into thinking his destination was Richmond. But heavy rains derailed Jackson's timetable. The route from Swift Run Gap to Port Republic was an unimproved country road, and the rain that started to fall in torrents on the afternoon of April 30th turned the road into a quagmire. Jackson and his staff covered 13 miles that day and spent the night on the outskirts of Port Republic, but the Valley Army struggled to cover five miles through the mud. As James I. Robertson, Jr. points out in his biography of Stonewall, April 30th was, although unknown to Jackson, just the first of 63 consecutive days in which he would be engaged in nonstop activities, and the strain would show in time. The 10th Virginia were newcomers to the Valley Army, having arrived only nine days before. On April 30th, Private Joseph Kaufman of the 10th confided in his diary, quote, Old Jack is a hard master from the way he is putting us through. My feet have given out, but still I have to travel on. Oh, I wish peace would be declared. End quote. As the rain had poured down, some of the veteran members of the Valley Army decided to have some fun at Stonewall's expense when the general and his staff rode through the troops to get to the front of the column. A couple of soldiers said, Let us make old Jack get his head wet. And before long, the men began to cheer enthusiastically, and Jackson removed his cap in acknowledgment, as the men knew he would. A degree of comedy ensued for the bedraggled, mud-covered soldiers, as a bareheaded Jackson on Little Sorrel came splashing by, and the general staff, on less spirited mounts, struggled to follow. Matters didn't improve much the next day, as a hard wind whipped rain into the faces of the miserable soldiers. And although some of the infantry reached Port Republic at nightfall, the artillery and trains lagged far behind. Nearly everyone agreed the road was the worst they had ever seen. Even Jedediah Hotchkiss admitted that the conditions were, quote, the worst I ever saw in the Valley of Virginia, end quote. The grueling battle against mud and rain continued on May 2nd, but late that afternoon the sun peeked through the clouds and then the third dawned bright and clear. The mud-spattered and exhausted army crossed Brown's Gap at daybreak and reached Meacham Station before sunset by an easy march over a dry turnpike. 
As it turned out, Jackson had subjected his men to three days of misery needlessly. Peter Cousins maintains that despite Stonewall's attempt to mystify and confuse the enemy, by mid-afternoon of May 2nd, Federal Division Commander Alpheus Williams had guessed that the Valley Army was on its way to link up with Allegheny Johnson. Nathaniel Banks agreed with Williams' conclusion, and so Jackson's labored march to Meacham Station had gone for naught. He might just as well have marched all the way to Gordonsville over a good macadamized turnpike, taken trains from there to Stanton, and saved the wear and tear on his army. In the end, though, it mattered little whether Banks divined Jackson's intentions or not, since he was in no position to do anything to counter Stonewall's move. For on May 1st, Abraham Lincoln, taking Banks at his word that nothing remained to be accomplished in the Shenandoah Valley, instructed him to withdraw back down the valley to Strasburg, and the next day orders arrived directing Shields' division to leave the valley and join McDowell at Fredericksburg. When the Valley Army had decamped from Elk Run Valley and marched west, the men had believed they were going forth to strike banks, and the thought filled them with delight. But then when Jackson turned them up into Brown's Gap, and they climbed up and over the mountains, their spirits fell as they naturally concluded they were leaving the valley to the Yankees and were going east to reinforce Joe Johnston's army in front of Richmond. But then another surprise awaited the troops as they boarded the railroad cars at Meacham Station, and as the trains pulled away, they were headed not east toward Richmond, but west. The trains were taking them back over the Blue Ridge, back to the valley that only yesterday they thought they were abandoning. Stonewall himself reached Stanton late in the afternoon of Sunday, May 4th, and found the place in a panic over rumors that the Valley Army was quitting the Shenandoah and heading east. The people were overjoyed when they realized Jackson wasn't abandoning them, though, and a carnival-like atmosphere soon prevailed as the relieved townspeople greeted arriving troops. Not realizing that the Federals had already divined his intentions, Stonewall promptly directed Ashby's cavalry to seal off Stanton. To maintain secrecy and security, no one was allowed out or in. By the evening of Monday, May 5th, the entire Valley Army had been assembled at Stanton. Most of the men had ridden the trains, although a few unlucky units had had to march from Meacham's station. Jackson was pleased to have his army concentrated at Stanton, and he derived additional pleasure on Monday from the arrival of the VMI Corps of Cadets. The threat to the valley was considered so serious that Jackson had accepted Superintendent Smith's offer to send almost the entire Corps of Cadets into the field, and so some 200 strong they arrived in Stanton on Monday. Stonewall was especially pleased that along with the boys came Colonel T.H. Williamson, a faculty member who was widely regarded as one of the ablest engineers in Virginia. The spit and polish of the VMI cadets contrasted sharply with the scruffiness of the Valley Army's veteran troops, and the boys' appearance provided the jaded veterans with a source of amusement, especially the men of the Stonewall Brigade, as the cadets were attached to the brigade for temporary service. The cadets wouldn't be expected to participate in combat, 
but there was still plenty that they could do to gain experience in a real campaign. At dawn on Wednesday, May 7th, the combined forces of Jackson and Allegheny Johnson, some 10,000 men, headed west out of Stanton with Johnson's men in the lead. That afternoon, advancing along the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike, Johnson encountered Milroy's pickets at Rogers Tollgate at the foot of Shenandoah Mountain, 13 miles from the town of McDowell. Milroy had already learned from his scouts that Jackson had combined forces with Johnson and that the Confederates were advancing his way. Milroy fully understood the threat to his brigade, and he immediately sent a message to Brigadier General Robert Shank, who commanded another brigade in Fremont's army. Shank was at that time located at Franklin, some 30 miles away. But expecting that Shank would march to his aid, Milroy ordered his command to fall back to McDowell. That night, Allegheny Johnson's men went into camp at Shaw's Fork, six miles to the east of McDowell, with Stonewall Jackson ten miles away at Buffalo Gap. And with that, the stage is set for the Battle of McDowell, which took place on Thursday, May 8, 1862, and which we will discuss next week. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Shenandoah Valley, 1862, Stonewall Jackson Outmaneuvers the Union, by Clayton and James Donnell. This is a book in Osprey Publishing's campaign series, and since it's not the first, and certainly won't be the last, uh, of these Osprey books that we recommend, we'll just say that it follows the same format as the other offerings in the campaign series, and offers a fairly good introduction to the ins and outs of Jackson's Valley campaign. You can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We have a couple of new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank this week, Andrea and Chris. And then thanks also to Dr. K in New Jersey and Michael S. in Minnesota for their donations this past week. And thanks, as always, to Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the start and close of every episode of the podcast. And thank you to each of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next week when we look at the Battle of McDowell. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.